As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, give us the grace of your Holy Spirit, that your word may be faithfully preached to the honor of your name and to the edification of your church. Help us to receive your word with the humility and obedience which it deserves. And hear our prayers, for we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in the Gospel of Mark to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad to have you here together. We've been considering a series through the book of Mark, and we've come to Mark chapter 9 at verse 14. So Mark chapter 9, verse 14, verses 14 through 29 will be our text for this morning. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, it can be found on page 1074 of many of our pew Bibles. Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. So Mark chapter 9, once again, beginning our reading at verse 14 and reading through verse 29. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, that is Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whatever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Well, this comes right after the transfiguration of the Lord. 
This is when we're, we are greeted with this scene. It's told from the perspective of Jesus and his disciples coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember he went up the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And as this story begins, Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, are returning to the other nine disciples. And as they return, they find this dispute going on. And if the transfiguration was, as Dr. Hal Jones said, a, a glimpse of heaven on earth then certainly this scene that greets us when they come down the mountain is a scene of hell on earth. Uh, as we see this torment of this poor child by this evil spirit. Um, and this, is, this scene is really in stark contrast to what we saw on the top of the mountain. Uh, but it's still going to testify to us of who our Lord is um, and what his disciples can learn about him uh, from this incident. Remember, this is in a larger context, uh, chapter 8 through really the end of chapter 10, that's teaching us two main things or telling us to watch out for two main things in this section. First, what it means for Jesus to be Messiah. We've come to these two themes again and again, so they should be familiar to you. Um, this probably wasn't the, this isn't the first time you've heard these things from me, but it's always good to be reminded. Um, what are the two main themes that this section of Mark Gospel is about? What it means that Jesus is the Messiah, and what it's required for those who want to be identified with him. Uh, what's required to be his disciples, what it's required to follow him. Um, and, and this section is going to help us, this particular story is going to help us to understand both of those things. Uh, the miracle that Jesus performs here, the wonderful work of exorcism that he does, shows clearly who he is. But this passage also teaches us something very important about what it's required if you want to be a disciple of his. Um, because this passage is going to teach us something of central importance about discipleship. The central importance of faith in Christ. The central importance that if we want to follow him, just how important faith in him is. Not just to understand who he is, but to trust him. To put our faith and trust in him. That really was, is what this passage is about. The central importance of faith for disciples of Jesus Christ. And how do we see this, this important truth being taught to us in these verses? Well, the first, it's through defeated disciples. Uh, that's the scene that meets us when they come down the mountain. Defeated disciples. Um, then we're going to be introduced to this desperate father who is desperate to see his son healed. And then finally, we see our delivering Lord revealed in his glory as he meets the need of this situation. So that's how we want to think about this text together. The defeated disciples the desperate father, and our delivering Lord. Uh, that, as we said, this, this scene comes right after the Mount of Transfiguration. The disciples are being reunited as Jesus comes with his sort of inner circle to this situation. They're, they find that there is a dispute ongoing, a dispute between Jesus' other nine disciples and scribes. Probably, again, the scribes we've seen before, the, the religious experts from Jerusalem who are sort of putting Jesus to the test. And as they arrive, they find the nine disciples disputing with the scribes. Um, they find this dispute going on. And Jesus' arrival in the midst of this dispute causes a great reaction. Uh, Mark tells us in verse 15, And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, Jesus, were ama greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. Um, now, Mark doesn't say why they were greatly amazed. 
Um, maybe it's just because the dispute is ongoing and Jesus is the subject of the dispute. And in the midst of the dispute, Jesus arrives. And maybe everyone's astonished and amazed and run to greet him because they say, okay, this has all been about Jesus, so now he's here. He'll be able to settle this dispute. We'll get some resolution to this issue that they're disputing over. Um, now, why would I say that Jesus is the center of this dispute? How do we know that? Um, well, we know that because of how the question that Jesus asks in verse 16 is answered. Um, he asks them, what are you arguing about with them? I think his question is directed to the scribes. What are you arguing about with my disciples? What is the subject of this dispute? But you notice it's not the scribes who answer Jesus. It's one person from the crowd who answers Jesus, the father of the demon-possessed boy who's brought him to Jesus to be healed. Verse 17, and someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and become rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Um, what does the man say? Well, first he says, I brought my son to you. I brought my son who's troubled in this way to you, Jesus, in the confidence that you could heal him, that you could relieve him of this evil spirit. And not finding you here, I entrusted him to your disciples um, and asked them to operate with your power, to operate with your authority. And that would have been a very common way to think about disciples and a master, to think that if the master has a authority or a power, then his disciples share that authority and power. So what he did was very understandable. It would have been very understandable in those circumstances to say, if the master has this power, certainly his disciples would have this power. And he was right to think that, right? We, we, we heard earlier in Mark's gospel the disciples were given power to cast out demons, so it's not even that he's making a bad assumption as the father or that the disciples are making a bad assumption in thinking that they can drive out this demon, right? Jesus gave them that authority, Mark chapter 6, verse 7. He called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. They had this authority and they had exercised it successfully, a few verses later in Mark chapter 6, 13, we're told, and they cast out many demons. They had the authority and they had the success. And so everything that everyone has done to this point has made perfect sense. The father said, I brought my son to you. You weren't here, so I turned him over to your disciples. And the disciples went ahead and tried to exercise the demon, but they found that they couldn't do it. That this demon was beyond their power and ability to drive out. As the Father says, they were not able to do it. And if we understand all of this, then we understand how this dispute has really centered on Jesus, not on his disciples. Because we understand the logic that's operating here, we understand how this dispute is really about who exactly is Jesus and what exactly is the authority and power that he has. Because the father is saying, you know, I came to you and I turned him over to your disciples and your disciples couldn't do anything for him. 
And if the disciples were supposed to operate with the power of the master, then it draws the master into question if they can't do things. You know, the father is essentially saying, I had confidence in you, but your disciples failed me. So what does that say about you? And we can imagine the scribes that are already hostile to Jesus would seize on that. It's exactly what we've been telling you. He doesn't have the power and authority he says he has. And if he does, why can't they drive the demons out in his name? You see how this dispute would have really centered on the Lord and on his power and on his authority? That's why it's so important that he wades into this dispute and shines the light on the problem where it really needs to be shown. Because their dispute has been, does Jesus have power and authority? That's really the nature of the dispute. And what does Jesus come in and clarify for them? He says, the, po- the problem is not my power and authority. What is the problem? It's his reaction to this dispute in verse 19 that really helps us to see where the real problem lies. And Jesus answered them in verse 19, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? This dispute is centered, does Jesus have power? Does Jesus have authority? And what does Jesus come and do? He said, the problem is not my power and authority. The problem is you have no faith in it. What is the problem? The problem is the faithless generation. This is particularly telling in light of where Jesus has just been on the Mount of Transfiguration and what we have just seen. He's been revealed in glory as the Son of Man. The Son of Man from Daniel 7, who's been given dominion and authority, who's been given dominion that will never pass away, a kingdom that will never be destroyed. He has all power and authority. And authority. His, question, his authority is unquestioned. His power is unmatched. He is the Lord of glory. The problem is not Jesus. The problem is the faithless generation. The problem is that nobody believes in Jesus. And they don't trust themselves to his power and to his authority. Maybe as we read verse 19, we think Jesus is really being angry. The way we would be angry at people who just could not get it. Right, you know, hello, is anybody in there? Jesus has power. Has that not become clear throughout this? He has authority. Has that not become clear throughout this? If it were us, we'd be angry. I don't think Jesus is angry in verse 19. I think the commentator is right who said this is an expression of weariness close to heartbreak. Because Jesus is saying, what is wrong with this people that have no faith? And if they don't have any faith while I'm here, what are they going to do when I'm gone? And if these are the disciples who I'm entrusting the world to when I'm gone, what will happen if this is the amount of faith they have? 
I think that's right. It, it's anguish. It's, it's frustration close to heartbreak for a faithless world. Because a faithless world is a powerless world. And what a wonderful testimony it is to our Lord's patience and his compassion that he does not throw up his hands and say, you know what, I've had it with you. If you don't understand the power and authority by now, you'll never get it. That's also what we might have been tempted to do. Say, you know what, I'm going to go find 12 more people who maybe will get it. But what a wonderful thing it is that that's not the kind of Lord we serve who shows his infinite patience and compassion by bearing with this faithless generation. And when faith is failing in the world and God's people do not do as they ought to do, he does not leave us but intervenes himself. Right? His last word is not, forget all of you. His word is, bring him to me. If you cannot do what needs to be done for the boy, I will do it. Bring him to me. And the disciples bring the boy to Jesus, and as soon as it sees him, I think that means the evil spirit, as soon as it sees Jesus, it throws the boy down again. And this horrible torment that we've only heard about before, we now see In verse 18, the torment of the boy was described by his father. This is what the demon does when it attacks him. This is how he reacts. But it's one thing to describe something so terrible. It's another thing to see it happening before your eyes. To watch this poor child be thrown down by the demon and to roll around foaming at the mouth, convulsed by it. It's a whole different thing to see the violence of the torment. And then to hear how long this poor child has been putting up with it. Because Jesus in his compassion asks the father, how long has, this, has he been like this? And he says, from childhood. From childhood, this poor boy has been struck mute by this spirit and thrown down from time to time by him. It's terrible to hear about the length of time this boy has been tormented by the spirit. And we also learn something of the purpose for which the Spirit torments him. Because the Father says, you know, it's been doing this to him since he was a child, and it's often thrown him into fire and thrown him into water to destroy him. It reminds us something of the purpose for which the devils afflict the world. They're servants of their master, the devil. And what do these slaves of the devil do? They do what their father does. What did Jesus say about the devil? He was a murderer from the beginning. What is his desire? His desire is to destroy life, body and soul. And that's what we're really seeing here, being clearly revealed to us the purposes for which this evil spirit has afflicted this boy, to destroy him, to destroy his life. That's the reason this demon has been tormenting the child his entire life. And that's when this father in his desperation, this desperate father, calls out to the Lord. 
if you can do anything for him. Help us. Have compassion on us. We can hear the desperation, right? We can put ourselves in his shoes, even if we've not been fathers of afflicted children or parents of afflicted children. We can put ourselves in this man's shoes, surely, to say, he, he is no help. There's no one else who can do anything. And he's crying out to the Lord and saying, can you do something? If you can do anything, help us. Have compassion on us. And what does the Lord zero in on in that statement? If you can. See, this is the whole problem. From a human perspective, we could say, we could forgive this father for saying that. He brought the boy in confidence to Jesus and took, turned him over to his disciples. The disciples failed him. And they'd been able to do it before. And so he must have seen the, per, the perplexed looks on their faces when they were powerless against this demon. And it must have drawn him to think, can anyone help? Can anyone do anything for him? And it seems so natural to say to Jesus, you know, if you can do anything, could you please help him? Would you please have compassion on us? And what does Jesus come and do to the Father? He says, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Jesus is teaching us an important thing. He's teaching the Father an important thing. He's teaching his disciples an important thing. He's teaching us an important thing. All things are possible for Jesus. He's really advancing the thing that he said to his disciples. The problem is not my power and authority. The problem is your capacity to believe in it. If I can do anything... I can do anything. There is nothing that is impossible for me. And because there is nothing that's impossible for me, there's never any reason not to believe in me. All things are possible to the one who believes because all things are possible to the one in whom we put our faith. That's what Jesus is trying to drive home. The problem is not me. It's not what I'm capable of. The problem is you don't believe me. And that's what makes the Father's response to what Jesus says so glorious. Because he takes that as true and says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. It's wonderful because he had initially said, come to our aid and help us. Come and help us. And when Jesus says, you know, your problem is your faith, he says, then help my faith. I believe, help my faith. If the problem is not your power but my belief, then please, Lord, help my belief. Help my faith. What a glorious response that is. Um, it's important in this text because the word the Father uses for unbelief is so close to the word that Jesus used when he called them a faithless generation. 
Um, faithless generation, it was the word in kind of an adjective form. Here, unbelief is kind of in a noun form. But what did Jesus said to the generation? Your problem is you're faithless. And what does the Father say to Jesus here? Lord, help my faithlessness. If that's the problem, then help that problem. It's a wonderful thing that he says. And this is a crucial lesson for the disciples of the Lord to learn. That this is what we need to do. The Father does this, and we have to really think about how his situation. He has seen this malignant evil right before his eyes that he's seen operate on his son for his son's whole life. And there's been no one who's been able to help. And now here Jesus is saying, I can help. I can help. And what is the trouble always? To compare what we see with our eyes and what we know to what Jesus is saying to us. In this man's struggle, we should see the struggle that we've all had in our own hearts. Maybe it's over our sin. We look in our own hearts and we see the malignance of our sin, the kinds of things that we do over and over again. And the Lord says, trust in me and I will deliver you from those things. Or we look at outside of ourselves at the malignant evil that is going on in the world all around us. And Jesus says, you trust in me and I will deliver you from all of those things. I will bring you safely into my heavenly kingdom. And we see the evil before our eyes and we hear the word of our Lord. And it's so hard for us to trust in that word. And so hard for us to trust in him. Because we all know that that feeling of saying, I hear what you're saying, Lord, but I'm worried my sin is too great. I hear what you're saying, Lord, but I'm worried that the world is just too wicked that the idea of us being brought safely home seems too remote a possibility at this point. And he's, this father is struggling with exactly what we struggle with as Christians. The things we think and the things we see and the things we know compared to what Jesus is saying to us. Him and his words compared to what we see and what we know. And we find continually that hope in him and fear of the evil live side by side. Uh, That trust in him and doubt continue to go together in our hearts. And what do we do when we face a situation like that? We need to do what this father does. Cry out to Christ for help. When we find hope and fear living side by side in our hearts, we have to say, Lord, I hope, help my fear. When we find trust and doubt living side by side, we have to say, Lord, I trust, help my doubt. We have to say what the Father says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Because Jesus had said, all things are possible for the one who believes. And the Father says, I believe, help me. Help me believe. And what does Jesus do? In his mercy, in his grace, in his power, he says, I will help you believe. And then what does he do? He shows himself to be the delivering Lord in whom the Father came initially to put his trust. 
I will help you believe that all things are possible for the one who believes in me. He shows himself to be the delivering Lord and delivers this child from the dominion of the devil. This terrible evil that's befallen this boy all of his life and resisted all other helpers is now fully and finally cast out by the Lord. When Jesus saw the crowd came running together in verse 25, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. John Flavella, a Puritan, once said, Don't give up until Christ has tried his hand at the problem. Don't give up until Christ's strength has been tried against the problem. Every other helper has tried against this demon, and the demon has resisted them all. But now here comes a voice he cannot resist, a power that is far beyond the devil and his host. The devil is strong, but he's a creature. Here comes the creator, the king of glory, giving him a command he cannot refuse, a word that he cannot resist. It's a word that's full and final. Come out of the boy and never enter him again. Come out and never trouble him again. That's a word that's binding on that demon now and forever because it's an eternal word by the eternal king who's been given dominion and glory. And with that word, the boy is delivered from the dominion of the devil. It's proof before their eyes of that truth that John celebrates in 1 John 4, 4, that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The Lord shows himself to be a delivering Lord by delivering this boy from the dominion of the devil. And in doing so, our delivering Lord shows that he also has the power to frustrate the designs of the devil, to make sure that his purposes cannot be done. Right? What was the purpose of the demon's affliction of this boy? Ultimately, he wanted to destroy his life. The father knew that. He wants to destroy him. And what does Jesus do by delivering this boy from the, de- from the demon's power? He delivers him from that design of destruction. Right? The demon wanted to destroy him. Jesus has preserved him. He's delivered him from the power of the devil. He's delivered him from the purposes of the devil. He's delivered his life. And the picture here that's given to us is he's been delivered from the dominion of the devil, he's been delivered from the devil's destructive purposes, and he's been delivered from death. That's the image that Mark is driving home, one of death and resurrection in the exorcism of this boy. Because when he is delivered from the demon, we read in verse 26, and after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. The boy was like dead, and most of them said, he's dead. Death. And what does Jesus do? But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose he arose. That's not, that's not coincidence that everyone says, he's dead. And Jesus takes him by the hand and lifts him up and he arose. 
The words here for death and resurrection are the same words that Mark has been using when Jesus says, the Son of Man will die, and after three days he will, uh, he will rise again. He was dead, he arose. Christ was dead, he arose. This boy was like dead, he arose. What is Mark trying to communicate to us? The Lord brings deliverances from death. Here is one who delivers from the dominion of the devil, who destroys and frustrates the devil's destructive purposes and raises the dead to life. Is there a better way to summarize the message of Jesus in the world? That this is what he's come to do. This is the power with which he's come. This is our delivering Lord. This is a perfect picture of what he does on the cross. He delivers us from the dominion of the devil. He frustrates the devil's destructive purposes to bring upon us the wages of our sin, which is death. He delivers us from death and raises us to life by his own death and resurrection. That's our delivering Lord. And the persistent challenge for him, for his disciples, is that we just don't trust him enough. Right? When, when they kind of give, when Jesus gives them sort of the after action report and they're back home in the private home together away from the crowd and they say, you know, Jesus, could you break down what the problem was? Because we'd cast out plenty of other demons, but we, we couldn't seem to be able to do it with this one. What, what was the problem? And he tells them this kind can only come out by prayer. And I think there's so many people who read that and just say, they're just talking sort of techniques for exorcism here. You know, we used one technique, it didn't really work out. What, what was the problem? And it's sort of like Jesus is saying to them, you know, you led with your right when you should have, you know, you should have worked your way in. You know, like it's just technique talk. But I think what Jesus says to them here is connected with everything else he said in the passage. What was the problem? This kind can only come out by prayer. And I think the implication is, and you didn't pray. You said we had power and authority. We told the demon to get out. He didn't get out. Now what do we do? And Jesus said, you know, you rested on your power and authority and you didn't pray. And that's an important lesson that they're going to have to learn for ministry. Don't forget to pray. Because what is prayerlessness? It's really self-reliance. I don't need help. I can do it myself. And that's ruinous for disciples of Christ. It's ruinous for anyone who seeks to follow Christ. Imagine I preach that way. I just thought, I went to seminary. I know what I'm doing. I can work. I can work at it. I don't need God's help. I can figure it out. That would be disastrous for my ministry. It would be disastrous for any one of us to say, well, you know, I, I'm good. I don't really need to pray. Calvin, you know, talking about this, said, there is an inexhaustible fountain of power in Christ. An inexhaustible fountain of power. And when we don't pray, we leave that fountain untapped. We sit there thirsty when a fountain is there. Calvin says in other places, it's... To have this privilege of prayer and then to not make use of it is like having gold buried in the backyard and knowing it's there and just not going out to dig it up and then being poor. 
This is an important lesson he's driving home to his disciples, not techniques for demon removal, but saying there's something fundamental and essential about prayer because prayer is the way we express our faith and trust in Christ. They didn't do what the father did. The father of the boy cried out to Jesus for help. And Jesus is telling his disciples, in your life and in your, in your ministry, there are going to be times you need to cry out to me for help. Don't become self-reliant, prayerless disciples. That was important for them. It's important for us. The central importance of faith is a powerful lesson that we all have to learn. In Christ, all things are possible because of who he is. He is the Lord of glory. And we express our, our confidence to him through our faith, and our faith is expressed through our prayers. And so as God's people, we have to live never doubting his ability to do for us what needs to be done, and then always submitting ourselves to his will for us because we know that his will alone is good. That's, that's what we have to learn in the Christian life. Faith and trust that the Lord can do all things. And then we'll be able to sing that praise of Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen.